Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon, and today, Dr. Death Part 2. No, uh, Harold Shipman did not come back to life, get released from prison and kill more people. That uh, you'd, you'd have heard about that. He died in prison, fortunately. Woo! <laughs> this is about another doctor who killed people, so... Well, less woo. What happens here is I have a script in front of me put together by the uh, the writer for this podcast, Callum. Thank you, Callum. I am going to read it. I was reading the reviews. Thank you for all the fantastic reviews that people leave for this show. If you're watching this on YouTube, it also goes out as a podcast. People can leave reviews of a podcast. And people say wonderful things about the show. I think it has like 5.9... 4.9s uh, kind of 5.9 stars. That would be better than a 5 stars. 4.9 stars. And there's like a thousand something reviews, which is amazing, seeing as this show is only like six months old. So thank you, everybody. That is crazy. Um, and what I was saying is someone was describing this as Simon Cold reads the script. And I totally forget that that's what this is called. Whereas like, if, you, if you're new here, I've never read this before. Uh, I will go on this exploration with you, dear listener, and we will find out about Michael Swango, Dr. Death number two. And uh, then afterwards, Jen, our fine video and audio producer, will add some audios and images if you're watching this and all those other things for you to enjoy. So thank you to Callum and Jen and and thank you for listening and your fine reviews. Thank you. And let's jump into it. The very first episode I penned for this fine show... (laughs) Thanks, Callum, as well. I mean, praising yourself there. Focused on the most murderous MD in history. I I was, I know, I always seem to do this. We'll get half a line in and already I want to go on an aside. But MD in the UK means something very different to MD in the US. Like if you're a medical doctor in the UK, it's, it's like, isn't it Latin? It's like Medici Doctoranus or whatever it stands for. But like, that's what doctors will have. They'll be like, Dr. So-and-so, MD. Whereas MD in the UK to me always meant managing director like of a company. Um, we don't have the MD afterwards, at least in common usage. It's just doctor so-and-so. And people will correct you if they think you're a, not, uh, you're a medical doctor and you're not. Most murderous MD in history, Great Britain's Harold Shipman. Needless to say, I haven't been within 100 feet of a clinic ever since. Fingered crossed this burning sensation clears up by itself. <laughs> Finally, I was at the doctor's yesterday. If you had your faith in the medical profession shaken by that story, I'm still alive. I haven't been murdered yet. I think because, just remember, like, Harold Shipman's a really bad dude, but it's really, really rare. If you two had your faith shaken in the medical profession by that story, then I'm sorry to announce that we're bringing you the sequel in today's Cash Crim. <laughs> I-, I like this brand new shortening of the podcast title that you've come up with, Callum. Uh, We're going to look at America's very own contender for the title of Dr. Death and potentially one of the most prolific serial killers in the country's history. Like his British counterpart, this doctor managed to worm his way into the confidence of his employers and patients for years while secretly carrying out one of the worst crime sprees the profession has ever seen. And uh, if you're a regular listener, I think it was a couple of episodes ago, we, we were like discussing which countries have the most serial killers and it's the US and the UK. And I was like really alarmed by this. And then people were saying in the comments, I think it was on the YouTube video for it, that that statistic is probably reflected by also the fact that the US and the UK have generally quite good policing, um, like detectives following up on stuff and serial killers getting caught. Whereas maybe we've had a couple of serial killers or like bad crime dudes. I think it was in South Africa. And it's like maybe there there's the, the serial killers getting away with a bit more. Anyway, Zimbabwe. Oh, we're back in Africa doing the rounds. 
Zimbabwe, 1995. Farmer Kanias Muzaziwa is lying asleep at Maneni Hospital, a Lutheran mission project in the rural south of the country. Earlier that week, his left foot had to be amputated to the heel after the painful sores on his toes turned septic. The operation was a success, and Mr. Muzaziwa was eagerly awaiting a prosthetic foot promised to him by a Swedish charity. But his condition was about to take a turn for the worse, thanks to the man in charge of treating him. Are we supposed to be in the U.S.? I thought this was—I thought this was the America, America's one. Maybe he moves there. I guess he moves there. Let's find out. In the middle of the night, the farmer awoke to see the silhouette of a visitor by his bedside and the glint of a needle in their hand. Muzaziwa later recounted, "I woke up to see Doctor Mike standing over my bed with an injection. Isn't <laughs> isn't Doctor Mike like a really big YouTuber?" <laughs> Different Dr. Mike. Definitely a different Dr. Mike. Which he put in my buttocks. Then he put it back in his jacket pocket, waved goodbye, and walked away. I was trying to get back to sleep, but I felt my whole body go numb. He tried to cry out for help, but no sound escaped his mouth. After a few minutes of burning sensation in his limbs, he managed a hoarse cry that brought one of the nurses to his side. Once he was stabilized, Muzaziwa cried out, That man, he's no good. He tried to kill me. The nurse went to confront Dr. Mike, who denied ever going into Muzaziwa's room at all. Regardless, nobody ever let the good doctor near Mr. Muzaziwa alone after that. Which, I mean, even if they were like, it was just a hallucination, then and, and they don't suspect Dr. Mike at all, they're still not going to let him near the patient, because the patient would be like visibly upset by Dr. Mike's arrival. Although, I get the strong feeling that Dr. Mike is going to turn out to be a bit of a psycho. What was this guy's name? Dr. Michael Swango. Yeah, it's, it, Michael Swango is Dr. Mike. Dr. Mike's a psycho. Let's move on. The sisters at Maneni Hospital, I'm sorry about the pronunciation, I don't know if that's correct, uh, had harbored suspicions about the newest member of staff for some time now. Mike's full name was Michael J. Swango, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, middle-aged doctor from the USA who joined them earlier that year. Whoa, I assume that this Dr. Swango was a Zimbabwe doctor who emigrated to the US. I don't imagine there is usually a ton of emig emigration from the United States to Zimbabwe, other than doctors without borders and such, but... Let's carry on. The arrival of an experienced American physician seemed like a godsend for the isolated hospital at the time. However, their blessing quickly turned into a curse. For one, the guy wore the exact same pair of blue corduroy trousers every day and came to work stinking of sweat. And he also seemed somewhat, well, majorly incompetent. Swango struggled with even some of the most basic medical tasks, which the staff attributed to his highly specific specialization in neurosurgery. But he still went to medical school, didn't he? You gotta go through, isn't it like six years of medical school where you learn all the basic shit and they're like, okay, you're a doctor now, congratulations. Now you have to go work at a hospital for many, many years and actually become a competent doctor. And then you have to go, like, neurosurgery? You're gonna be like 30-something before you're actually a neurosurgeon, right? Do you just forget all the basic shit? That wasn't the worst of it. One nurse speaking under condition of anonymity explained, People with simple illnesses or who were on the road to recovery kept dying on his ward. He liked to do ward rounds on his own and often prescribed multi-drugs to individual patients, which is not the way a real doctor behaves. Is Dr. Mike a real doctor? <laughs> Did he just come over from the US with like a, a printed out yeah, like Harvard Medical School certificate from his Epson printer and be like, yeah, yeah, real doctor, welcome. I'm here to save the day. The nurses noticed that the hospital's death rate was increasing worryingly fast, and this latest incident seemed like all the confirmation that they needed. Dr. Mike was to blame. The next morning, Musaziwa found the cap of the doctor's secret syringe 
it had dropped under his bed. Well done, Dr. Mike. <laughs> yeah. Evidence disposal is not ever a strong point of our profiled criminals, is it? But when the nurse took this evidence to management, Swango accused them of rumor-mongering, and the sisters were silenced by management. So Dr. Mike was allowed to continue spreading the stench of death and body odor around Mineni Hospital throughout the rest of 1995. A few months after Mr. Mzuziwa's unexpected bout of paralysis, another amputee experienced a similar fit. This was the hospital's foreman, Philemon Chipoko, who fell into critical condition not long after receiving aftercare from the doctor he died before anyone could come to his rescue then at the start of 1996 edith nguenya who was employed by dr mike as a cleaner fell unexpectedly ill the doctor drove her to the hospital drenched in sweat and clutching her chest by the next day she was dead dr mike it seems you are brazenly just killing people in the hospital but not just the patients the the cleaners was the cleaners or the managers or something the hospital's foreman i don't know what a foreman is is in a hospital but you're killing the staff you're killing the patients you're killing your cleaner dude you're gonna get caught why haven't you been caught already the angel of death By this point, the nurses were absolutely convinced that Dr. Mike was more concerned with taking lives than saving them. The pattern was painfully obvious. But why is no one calling the police? The nurses are like, yeah, 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 that doctor, 100% killing people, but we'll just talk about it in the coffee room. But unless they could prove it beyond a doubt, it was their word against his. Yeah, but there's loads of them. I would get it if it's like, uh, you know, doctor versus nurse. Also, even if it was... There's got to be some sort of ethics review board who take this accusation seriously and at least, you know, make an effort to vaguely look into things like the increasing death rate. Anyway. But unless they could prove it beyond a doubt it was their word against his, they finally got their big break one evening in the spring of 1996 when a shrill cry rang out from the maternity ward. Dr. Mike, get out of the maternity ward, you psycho. When the sisters rushed to investigate, they found Dr. Mike by an expectant mother's bedside. She was shouting that the doctor had just injected something into her IV. At first, Mike said that his patient was just hallucinating, but quickly changed his story. He was merely flushing water through the tubes. When the woman started sweating profusely and vomiting, it was obvious he was up to something more sinister. The nurses weren't buying Mike's excuses, and the testimony of the pregnant woman who survived unscathed, by the way, thankfully, now arrest Dr. Mike and put him in prison forever, was, why is this so long? This script is so long. This is not a short episode. Why is this not ending on this page with Mr. Mike, with Dr. Mike being caught, having his medical license revoked shortly after they strap him to a chair or... They, they, they're probably not killing Zimbabwe, people in Zimbabwe in the late 90s, but let's just put him in a really horrible prison forever. <laughs> Simon, you need to go through the court of law and stuff. I'm like, yes, yes, I know. We'll take you through the court of law and all of that stuff, and then we'll imprison him forever. The nurses weren't buying Mike's excuses, and the testimony of the pregnant woman who survived unscathed, by the way, was enough to finally turn the medical director against Dr. Mike. By this point, the nurses believed that he was responsible for the deaths of nine patients, as well as the two attempted killings we've witnessed. As one sister Hove put it, We thought he was an angel of mercy come to save people when he first arrived because we were so short of doctors, but he turned out to be an angel of death. However, since no autopsies had been carried out on his alleged victims, the best the hospital could do was dismiss the Grim Reaper from his post and report him to the medical board wait you caught him injecting like this poison into a pregnant woman's iv there's got to be more than this that is definitely a crime when local police got involved they found a refrigerator in the doctor's home filled with a secret stash of medicines 
ah, okay, he's a doctor. I, it doesn't necessarily mean murder, unless those medicines are murder medicines. Like, what's in there? Oh, just like strychnine. Just tons of strychnine. He must have smuggled them into Zimbabwe illegally and concealed them from his colleagues all that time. When the cops questioned him about the contraband, he was outright offended, saying, I thought I had come to a jungle, and out of the goodness of my heart, I brought my own drugs. What an absolute saint you are, Mike. <laughs> Bob Geldof would be proud. <laughs> Feed the world. Fleeing. That is Bob Geldof, right, who did Live Aid. I am remembering that right, right? <laughs> fleeing to Bulawayo. But in reality, this kind-hearted doctor had wreaked havoc on the people of that community by illegally administrating those drugs to patients in massive overdoses. While all this was unfolding, Mr. Muzaziwa returned to his farm on a pair of crutches, unable to work and without any kind of compensation. Victims of medical malpractice like that in the States can usually sue for big, big bucks, but in this case, it ended up being it ended up being Dr. Mike that launched a lawsuit against the hospital. First, he ran away in shame to the town of Bulawayo, about 200 miles north, and established himself in an affluent suburban community on the outskirts of town. There he started attending a white Presbyterian church and Bible study group where he was introduced to top human rights lawyer David Coulthard. He convinced Coulthard to advocate for him in an attempt to keep his Zimbabwean medical license, and as the lawyer put it, he struck such a pathetic victim pose when he came into my office. He portrayed himself as someone who had come to Africa to help rural black people, and he was treated in an abominable fashion. Now, Dr. Mike, you came here to you, you came there to kill people, you psycho. <laughs> Of course. Clearly, those ignorant country folk never understood the complexities of modern medicine. Who were they to deny a pregnant woman her arsenic? Savage. Amazingly, news reports from this time seem to suggest he was eventually successful in suing his old employer. Dude, that lawyer is too good. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, where someone that, like, like allegedly, OJ's lawyer, whoever that was, too good. Allegedly. The, uh, I, there's, there's I don't like lawyers who are too good. <laughs> With the help of his world-class victim complex, Dr. Mike managed to get his community of white Christians on his side, and he was even able to land a short-lived position at another hospital while his case was under review. One of his fellow churchgoers, widow Lynette O'Hare, even offered him a place to stay. Mike started renting a room in her home, which once belonged to the woman's daughter. Whispers of murder and malpractice had started emerging in the papers by this point, but it never really bothered the landlady. Her community vouched for Dr. Mike as a good young Christian man. I say young man because Mike had told the people in his new hometown that he was 27 years old, knocking a full 15 years off his actual age. That's a big difference. I feel people know the difference between someone who's 42 and 27. Although I don't always know because people are like, Simon, you must be like at least 50. And I'm like, bro, I'm 33. <laughs> and they're like, what? Oh, I should like i don't know moisturize or some shit that might have been able to help his romantic prospects among the eligible young women of bulawayo but he wasn't very lucky in love regardless shortly after moving into mrs o'hare's place mike was rejected by a woman from his church sending him into a world-class sulk maybe it was the, that you never changed your trousers sorry pants as my american listeners might say dude you wore the same weird blue corduroys and like that smell like when someone's been for a run and it's like i smell you smell a little bit sweaty it's like okay that's fine when you wearing those same nasty tra you get that like homeless smell you stink like that really stenchy smell that kind of offends the 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 back of the throat and the nostrils it's like that's not good that's not good mike no one likes that you might be a neurosurgeon <laughs> but if you have really smelly trousers people are still not going to like you 
Tendon from hell. After being shot down by his love interest, he locked himself in his room like an angsty teenager with the curtains drawn. He only emerged to collect the breakfast left for him by his door and to leave the empty plates outside afterwards. Despite repeated attempts to coax him out, nobody caught sight of him for a full five weeks. That's okay, he doesn't need to shower anyway. <laughs> He's not into that. When he eventually emerged from his muggy cave, he took to borrowing the landlady's car and found another woman to chase, a young divorcee across town. Over the next few weeks, her hair started noticing food, alcohol, and money missing from her cabinets. Even some of her daughter's underwear disappeared. Uh Uh-oh, you weirdo. I mean, what a surprise. (laughs) What a surprise. The psycho guy is a weirdo. Her good Christian lad was turning out to be a tenant from hell, and things are about to get far worse. Please don't kill the landlady. One day, when Mike was out at work, the cleaning lady went into his room to tidy up and made a horrific discovery. In her chilling retelling of of her ordeal, O'Hare describes how the cleaner came to her and said to her in a grave tone that she better come and look. Are they going to find a body in this room? How did it get in there, and whose body is it? This is not good. Together, they crept into the doctor's room and over to his dresser in the corner. Or they're going to find, like some weird trophies like some blood slides from dexter or something damn dude inside cunningly concealed and can to put that in like a uh, quotes were some bacon sandwiches oh yes a pile of feasty stale bacon sandwiches pieced together from breakfast leftovers but to hear o'hare tell it you'd think she'd found a pile of severed hands <laughs> this isn't so bad he's stealing your money i'd be more if like my tenant was keeping like weird like crusty food in their room i'd be like clean it up but if they were stealing my money i'd be like get out (laughs) it's a difference no uh what did she say i knew then that this was an insane mind and i felt sick with terror i also began to believe that he could have been guilty of the allegations (laughs) he stayed in his room for five weeks is a bit of a weirdo he takes your daughter's underwear and you're like crusty bacon sandwiches that's the thing that pushed it over the edge for me It's hardly a case-breaking development, but this was the tipping point that made the landlady live in fear of Dr. Mike from then on out. She paid her cleaner and cook to come live with her, terrified of what the bacon sandwich psychopath's next move might be. Oh, hair or whatever, you're also a bit strange, aren't you? Time running out. As we already know, he was capable of far worse stuff than stockpiling breakfast goods. After Dr. Mike realized his relationship with O'Hare had soured irreparably, he turned his poisonous tactics against her. One day, after inviting a friend over for a meal, the landlady and her dinner guest started violently vomiting. They went to a clinic in town where the resident physician Dr. Michael Cotton suspected arsenic poisoning. (laughs) I wonder who did that. He encouraged the widow to send samples of her hair down to South Africa for testing. Meanwhile, she asked her lodger to kindly GTFO. (laughs) He never showed a flicker of emotion during the eviction, and her hair thought the ordeal was was finally over. You poisoned them with arsenic. How, again, how have you not been arrested yet? However, two days later, she started having car issues. The mechanic found the problem. Her brake lines are cut. It couldn't be more, if if that's it, this couldn't be, it's even more like crazy stereotypical crazy person two kilograms of sugar had been poured into a fuel tank what are you doing she i mean i know it ruins cars but it's like why why you're so crazy 
She reported it to the police not long after the lab results came back. Toxic levels of arsenic were detected. O'Hare is terrified that the doctor would come back to finish the job, so she hired a security guard for our home. The police came to investigate the car first, but Mike wasn't available for questioning. The landlady never knew where he disappeared to after moving out of her house, but she was certain he would come back for her. When the proof of poisoning arrived, a warrant for Mike's arrest was issued. At goddamn last! <laughs> what is going on, police? While the search was still ongoing, the Zimbabwean CID uh, filed a report with the FBI via Interpol informing them that one of their citizens was terrorizing the locals. The moment the file reached their desk mentioning the blonde American doctor with the pension for poisoning, alarm bells started blaring. Ooh, did he leave America because he was poisoning people? Is that why he's in Zimbabwe? I mean, it would kind of make sense. Because, like, that emigration's a bit weird, and he's clearly not a do-gooder going there to, like, help out with their lack of doctors, is he? Is he? He murdered people already, and he left, didn't he? How did they not catch him already? Surely that's, like, they're going to do background checks or something. No? This was the 1990s. They have computers. Get it together. For the past couple of years, they've been on the hunt for this murderous doctor after he had simply vanished off the face of the earth. Although Callum has a little thing in here which says, Simon, if you want to break this into two parts, begin here. Good news, dear listener, we're not breaking it into two parts. You get this all in one because I've only been recording for like 20 odd minutes, so it wouldn't be a long episode. And well, let's just carry on, shall we? <laughs> this, you didn't need to know this. It's, it's highlighted in red here, so it's like, don't read it, Simon. <laughs> what am I doing? Let's carry on. Simon, a little bit of professionalism would be nice. Doctor Death Origins. As it turns out, this Dr. Michael Swango is actually a suspected serial killer and known fraudster high up on the FBI's wanted list. He was suspected of using a wide range of aliases and false documents to defraud his employers, not unlike his fake reference letters and CV that he used to land the Zimbabwe job. Wait, is he not? He's, please at least be a doctor. His, we, we've titled the episode Dr. Michael Swango, so I'm assuming he has some sort of medical degree from somewhere. He's like a doctor of guitar or some shit. Originally, Swango had hailed from Quincy, Illinois, where he was born in 1954. From an early age, he was obsessed with gore and catastrophe, with a particular affinity for stories for the Holocaust. Dude, what is wrong with you? With his mother's questionable encouragement, he would compile scrapbooks of newspaper clippings detailing car wrecks and murders. Jesus, how awful it sounds like your average true crime fan. Also, I mean, you might love true crime. And enjoy it as an adult, but please don't be encouraging your kids to, like, clip murders and put them in a scrapbook. Or you are going to be listening to a true crime podcast one day about your own children. Okay? Casual criminalist warning right there. <laughs> After an aborted attempt to follow his father's footsteps in the Marines, Mike decided to go into the medical field, eventually studying at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. It was there that his peers first started noticing that something wasn't quite right about his bedside manner. What a shock for the guy who loves gore and horror and enjoys the horrors of the holocaust one report mentions that he was known as lazy preferring to work as an ambulance attendant rather than concentrate on his studies christ if volunteer emt work is considered lazy what the hell would they make of my student days yeah <laughs> i'm like i don't know emergency rooms ambulance stuff it whenever you see it, i'm like that shit is intense i know a guy who's uh, an emt it seems really intense. Like, that does not seem like easy work by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> like, my life is so easy. I mean, I feel like I work pretty hard. I run a lot of shows. But my life is, like, objectively easy compared to, like, actual hard jobs. Like, mining. <laughs> I don't know. I'm always like, feel that was a hard day at work. I get home from work. And I was like, how was it? I was like, oh, it's a really long day. 
And I was like, but at least I wasn't mining. <laughs> It was during these ride-alongs that young Swango got his first taste of death. Biographies mention that he was visibly fascinated with watching people pass away. It gave him a bigger rush than actually saving people. The more violent the injury, the more desperate he was to be at the scene. It's not exactly clear when he decided to start ex expediting the death process himself, but we do know that an unusual number of patients ended up in critical condition whenever he was on the wards. At least five of them died within the first couple of years. In fact, so many sick folk died under his care, his classmates dubbed him Double O Swango, licensed to kill. <laughs> Guys, um, when you're at medical school <laughs> and you're dubbing one of your classmates as having a license to kill you need to you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself and maybe wreck his career apparently he took the joke pretty damn literally getting a medical degree was the perfect cover for someone obsessed with ending lives especially just for the sake of it yet he came extremely close to losing his golden ticket early on they called him double o license to kill <laughs> how did he complete medical school what is going on again it was discovered that Swango was faking checkups during his hospital rounds and he was almost kicked out of the university. A unanimous decision was needed from the disciplinary committee to send him packing, but under pressure from Swango's lawyer, one member decided to give him a second chance. Has to rank up there near the guy who denied Hitler's art school application. Oh my god. <laughs> Dude. Internship. Swango got his act together and started a surgical internship at Ohio State University Hospital in 1983. After he was entered into the rotation, the nurses started noticing an alarming spike in unexpected deaths. But just like the sisters in Zimbabwe, they were dismissed as paranoid. Some of the other doctors noticed that when Swango brought in a bucket of fried chicken to share around the staff room, anyone who ate it started vomiting violently. That would seem like a harassment prank compared to what he did next. I, I feel like I'm overdoing the shock in this episode, but again, it really is incredible that this none of this is ever taken further. It's just absolutely bizarre. At 11pm on the 14th of January 1984, Double O Swango was called to the bedside of Cynthia Ann McGee. She was clocking a fever of over 39 degrees, that's 102 Fahrenheit for our American friends. He was supposed to just take a blood sample from the teenager, but once the nurses left the room, he slipped a secret syringe out of his coat pocket. At midnight, the alarm started blaring a code blue, and Cynthia was dying fast. The nurses found her unresponsive, and her face was pale blue. Nobody could figure out why the heart of a generally healthy young woman had suddenly stopped beating. Nobody but Swango, of course. His diagnosis a deadly injection of potassium. This was exemplary of Swango's modus operandi. He would stalk the wards looking for patients to murder without raising suspicion. Those on potentially lethal medications were the easiest. All he had to do was administer a slightly larger dose than usual. If that wasn't possible, he'd prescribe them something strong enough to do the job. Be aware if you go to your doctor with a headache and they suggest a whopping dose of morphine, he's probably not to be trusted. If that wasn't possible, Swango would just straight up poison his victims with recipes from his handwritten poison cookbooks back home. Eventually, he was caught doing just that i believe in the medical profession today because there were cases of you know a doctor accidentally prescribing you know instead of 10 milligrams 100 milligrams and people dying that now there are checks and balances in place so maybe the pharmacist will also check to make sure that it's not crazy or there'll be computer programs that that check i, I remember reading about this somewhere or he hearing about it but yeah i guess even in the 90s it was easier 
or was it 80s? Sorry, 1980s. We jumped back in time. On February the 7th, 1984, 69-year-old Rena Cooper awoke to find Swango injecting something into her IV just moments before she suffered a seizure. A nurse reported that he had a funny grin on his face as he left the room. It couldn't have been any more obvious if he was rubbing his hands together and laughing like a cartoon villain. And honestly, who would blame him? Because no one seems to actually do anything about it when he does these terrible crimes. This was enough for the administrators to launch an investigation into Swango's month-long spree of malice, finally, which cleared the young doctor of any wrongdoing. Ow! Ow! They asked him to take the rest of the week off, then shifted him to another wing. <laughs> Perfect. Problem solved. Uh, the only real repercussions were that Swango was placed under increased observation for the last few months of his residency and was told they wouldn't be keeping him on afterwards. The increased scrutiny did nothing to deter him. In fact, this is when his patients started deteriorating or dying at an even more alarming rate than before. He was just taking out his frustration on the people that he was supposed to protect. Donuts of Death Somehow, despite his gross incompetence and alarming kill counts, Swango just kept swanning into medical positions without any issues. After his internship finished, he worked as an ambulance EMT in Adams County. It didn't take long until his colleagues got sick of him, like pretty much everyone else in his professional life. It might have had something to do with his questionable social skills. For example, one of his old colleagues, Brent Unmasig, recalled how Swango once described his perfect accident, a school bus crashing with a petrol tanker spreading charred bodies over the road, it's a bit of a conversation killer. Yeah, my dude. What is wrong with you? It's like, yeah, yeah, the perfect accident. Loads of children dying from horrible burns and traumatic injuries. You're a doctor, Mike. In October, he tried to make amends for all this uncomfortable weirdness. Swango brought in a peace offering of coffee and donuts for five of his colleagues. You could probably guess what happened next. The entire crew fell violently ill. By the time they figured out why, the remaining donuts were gone. Still, it didn't take a genius to crack the case. All they needed was some evidence. Isn't circumstantial evidence enough at some point? I mean, do you really need a donut to prove that eating all the donuts made you sick? Really? Still, go search his home and find the poison donut making kit or whatever. When Swango was out on a call later that week, they forced open his locker, smart, and inside were two bottles of ant poison and a handful of syringes. After Swango was arrested, detectives found a stockpile of these poisons at his house, including copious amounts of arsenic. When the news broke, the nurses at his old internship collectively shouted, Told you so. Yeah, guys, how about you did something about it? I mean, I guess they, they, they wanted to, or was that the nurses in Zimbabwe? They should have done something about it. Everyone should have done something about it way earlier than now. And the hospital was torn to shreds for ignoring the potential poisoner on their payroll. Still, the worst of his crimes, all the horrible murder stuff, remained undetected. But what do you think he was doing with those syringes? Svango was sentenced to five years for aggravated battery. Not long enough, but at least there's some. Curriculum Morte A stretch of jail time for poisoning should be enough to exclude someone from medical work forever, and sure, Michael Swango, Michael Swango lost his coveted license to kill and or cure, but it only took a bit of ingenuity to get right back in the game. His talent for forgery and fraud meant that he continued a brazen campaign of poisoning and murder throughout the late 80s and 90s. Here's how his resume from those days reads. Counselor, Career Advice Center, Virginia, 1989. After serving just two years of his sentence... No, God! Again, WTF. Uh, Swango left prison behind and took on work as a career advice counselor in Virginia. His own career was going so damn well, after all. <laughs> Dude, you just got out of prison. 
The last thing I want a career counselor to be is someone who just got out of jail. It's like you went to jail for uh, a su- battery. No, I don't. I don't need your advice on what I should be doing with my life. However, he was fired at the end of the year when his bosses discovered he was sleeping in the basement and working on his tragedy scrapbooks on company time. Shortly after he met his future fiancée, nurse Kristen Kinney, who broke off an engagement to get together with him. Swango himself had recently married his university sweetheart, but it would only last a short while. Why would anyone marry this dude? He doesn't seem to have any social skills. He smells bad. Like, why? Why? He was in jail. I mean... Obviously, PM, that sounds bad. People who have been to jail and stuff obviously live reformed lives. But we know this guy is not reformed, and we know he should have been in jail for a much longer time. All right? I don't think he's exactly what you'd describe as a catch, is, tr- is, is what I'm trying to say here. Next, lab technician at ATI Cole, Virginia, 1989 to 1991. Some employees reported mysteriously falling sick with stomach pains and dizziness during his time there. The mysterious illnesses got progressively worse. One of the executives nearly slipped into a coma in the hospital. Nobody ever traced the cause back to the disgraced MD. Meanwhile, at Atacol Services, several employees, including the president of the company, began suffering from sudden bouts of severe stomach cramping, nausea, dizziness, and muscle weakness. Some of them were hospitalized, and one of the executives of the company was nearly comatose. Poisoning was fun and all, but double O Swango was desperate to get back into the field. After leaving the lab tech job, he divorced his wife, shacked up with Kinney, and set his sights on regaining his license. Dude, you were in prison for battery on your patients. Good luck with that. Although somehow I get the feeling he's going to get it back, which, because just given how this episode's gone so far, and given how shit everything is, it's just going to be like, he's getting that license back, isn't he? Jesus, I hope not. Resident doctor, oh god he did. Resident doctor. <laughs> Sanford USD Medical Center, South Dakota, 1992. Mike legally changed his name to Daniel J. Adams and started seeking out a fresh medical license in a new state. His employers were under the impression, thanks to the forged prison documents and a fake letter from Virginia's governor, that he was only locked up for six months for fistfighting with a colleague, a misdemeanor rather than a felony. Just like that, Dr. Death was back treating patients. I don't think you just change your name. Just that's it. It's like easily untraceable if you change your name. Surely not. There's gonna be some sort of paper trail. It's 1992. Really? Really? It was then that he made the acquaintance of a 60-year-old carpenter, Baron Harris. He came in with a simple case of pneumonia, but slipped into a coma overnight. His wife claimed that Swango injected him with an unknown sedative in the small hours of the morning. When he asked the doctor about her husband's death, he put on his trademark psychopathic smile and replied, I hope it wasn't anything we did. (laughs) Why? It's because you know you're going to get away with it because you've gotten away with it forever. Ah! Baron died less than two months later. Ah! Mike! Starring role, Justice Falls, 1993. On Thanksgiving Day, the Discovery Channel aired an episode of this popular true crime show. The staff at Stanford USD recognized a familiar face in the segment on a certain convicted poisoner. It was the guy currently mixing up medicines to inject into their patients. This episode was released around the same time as a background check from the American Medical Association came to light, as Swango had tried to join them earlier that year. How is that? You're not doing a more thorough background check when you hire a doctor at a hospital. I feel like that, you know, places there should be thorough background checks. Primary schools, schools in general, hospitals, like places where there are places where there are people at risk, <laughs> like children and sick people who are placing trusted doctors. Get your shit together establishments. 
They weren't the only ones shocked by the horrific track record. Swango's fiance also had no idea about the nature and severity of his crimes. She threatened to leave him, and then, over the next few months, she started suffering from the same chronic migraines and nausea. At one point, a policeman found her wandering the streets, naked and confused. When she eventually ran away to her mother's place in April 1993, her strange ailment stopped. Shocking. Unfortunately, though, her abuser showed up to take her back just a few days later. My dude, like, no, don't go with him. Don't go with him. You, please. Please. I know this is so complicated because there's all sorts of psychological stuff going on there, but just don't. Ay. Resident Doctor, New York State University Medical School, 1994. So crazy. That's so crazy. He's now a resident doctor again. And he was literally caught by, like, whatever this catching people show is on Discovery. God damn! With his career quite deservedly in ruin, Swango dropped off the radar for a while before landing this job on the East Coast. Kinney was to stay behind in Virginia until he got himself established. At first, he was posted in a veterans' affair clinic in Northport. A few months into this placement, Swango was short of funds, so he selfishly emptied out his partner's bank account and called to let her know. This would be the last time he ever spoke to her. A few days later, Christine killed herself, shot herself in the chest. The mental stress of her, his betrayals must have been too much to bear. That's sad. This would prove to be Dr. Death's undoing, because the young woman's grieving mother went on the warpath. Before Kristen committed suicide, she'd revealed where her ex-lover had disappeared to, and so Swango was once again outed as a fraud when the mother reported him to the medical authorities. He was immediately dismissed, and when the story reached the press, the deans of both colleges which hired him soon followed. Good, because they should have been doing some sort of checking. It's insane that there is not any level of checking. Why? The New York State University dean's last act in post was to send out a mass warning to every single teaching hospital and med school from coast to coast. Apollo Swango was now finally blackballed from the profession, in America that is. Fugitive on the FBI, various on the run, various locations, 1994 to 1996. Shortly after Swango landed back on the unemployment line, the FBI announced that they had a warrant for his arrest. He was wanted on suspicion of using fake credentials to enter the government-run VA hospital, a federal crime. Let's get him on something. Just get him on something like the tax evasion in Al Capone. Just get him on something and get him in prison. He went on the run and then managed to track him down to a water treatment plant in Atlanta. By the time uh, they kicked the door down, he had already slipped away. And you know where the story goes from there. On the road again. It would be years before the FBI could pick up the trail again, halfway across the world, in the last place they expected to find their man. Yep, we're back in Zimbabwe. But you know who isn't? Michael Swango. In late 1996, the doctor sensed that his time was running out. The local police were looking to charge him with pouring the sugar into his landlady's car, so he fled across the border to Zambia. We don't know much about what he got up to there, but we think we can quite easily fill in the blanks. Bit of fraud, bit of poisoning, couple of murders etc etc swango was a compulsive killer who rarely changed his methods who knows how many more lives he ruined in the last months on the run it's believed that he set up for a time in namibia once again walking into medical jobs in a country which was desperate for doctors the fbi issued renewed appeals for information and sent out warnings to all ports of entry in the usa in case the doctor tried to return to home soil that's it doesn't seem very likely does it just gonna fly home to a country with like a FBI. Like, FBI know what's up. <laughs> it's not like regular police. They're gonna, you know, you walk in those borders, they're gonna be like, Mike! Mike, what's up? <laughs> Come with me, please. You're in big trouble, lad. 
But after he came in, the trail was going cold once again. For a time, it looked like Michael Swango might have slipped through the authorities' fingers forever. That was until a man was stopped at Chicago's O'Hare Airport in March 1997. Wait, he did return? Really? Amazingly, Swango just walked right into the net willingly while trying to transit through Chicago on his way to Saudi Arabia. Using the same old tricks, he had recently landed a medical job there. Thankfully for the people in the Middle East, Dr. Death's killing spree would be cut short at just four countries and two continents. Well, one, that's crazy. But also, what are you doing transiting through Chicago on the way from uh, Zimbabwe to Saudi Arabia? Did you really need to go across the Atlantic twice? <laughs> it's very bizarre. Although maybe he didn't know, he just bought a cheap flight and he gets on the plane and it's like, can you imagine? He gets on the plane and they're like, okay, we'll be shortly arriving in Chicago before the plane, the, you know, before we uh, move to Saudi Arabia. And he's like, oh God, oh, uh-oh, uh-oh, what? America, no! The federal fraud charges against him were extremely strong with the extensive paper trail of forgeries that he left behind. It wasn't exactly difficult to put together a convincing case and Swango was sent behind bars once again. So, how much time are we talking? Surely after potentially killing... No, but it's not going to be much time because it's just like... I mean, fraud, obviously, and this is like terrible fraud where he's like getting medical jobs. This isn't... I mean, like... I, Bernie Madoff fraud and shit where millions of people or billion, lose billions of dollars or whatever happened there. It's like, yeah, that's bad. Unquestionably bad. <laughs> Definitely deserves a lot of time in prison. But this is, this is worse, right? Because he's like killing people. He's like getting medical jobs and murdering people. I feel like this should be a long time, even though it just seems to be not murder charges. Surely after potentially killing dozens of patients, not what he's on trial for, he was due a hefty stretch of prison time. You'd think so, but at this point the poisonings were still just suspicions. The only thing the FBI could prove was fraud, so that's what Swango went down on. His sentence was a meager 3.5 years, handed out in July 1998. The judge stipulated that he wasn't allowed to work anywhere near the prison kitchens or clinic for the duration of his sentence. Although, at this point, I wouldn't have been surprised if he was running the infirmary by the end of it. Yeah, because this is just the craziest story of never-ending incompetence. Justice finally served. It'd be pretty anticlimactic to end the story if Swango just served a short little sentence, then went on to live the rest of his life as a free man. So thankfully, the FBI weren't just sitting on their hands while he was on the inside. The investigation started properly looking into all the similar claims from uh, throughout the years, claims which revealed a trail of destruction that was glaringly apparent in retrospect. Proper autopsies were finally carried out on some of his victims, revealing trace amounts of poison still in their systems. Through witness testimony and lab testing, the prosecutors painted a picture of a cold and calculating psychopath fond of paralyzing his victims and watching the life slip out of them. Among their evidence were some of his notebooks seized from a storage locker in which he describes the pleasure that he got from killing. We're here again, <laughs> writing down the crimes. <laughs> Every When Casual Criminalist gets merch, the, the, my, I'm already looking forward to the Don't Write Down Your Crimes t-shirt. <laughs> it's just like, Crime 101, guys. Don't write that shit down. Come on. Come on now. Today, I derived great pleasure from many murders. That's an error. <laughs> Swango was once again set for early release in July of 2000, so after two years. But the promise of freedom was snatched away from him at the very last moment. Just one week before the end of his sentence, the FBI swooped in and slapped him with three murder charges. Uh-oh, that's more than three years! And one count each of assault, making false statements, mail fraud, and attempted wire fraud. Back to jail it was then. <laughs> I mean, like, just... I mean, three murder charges, you're going away forever. Do we really need to have, like, wire fraud? 
Mail fraud. It's like, we got murder, guys. Murder's what you wanted all along, isn't it? Dr. Death pled guilty on all charges, including emotionlessly, admit, emotionlessly admitting to killing the teenager Cynthia McGee all those years ago. She would have been well into her 30s by then, perhaps with a family of her own. It wasn't remorse that inspired Swango's honesty, but fear. Pleading guilty allowed him to avoid the threat of extradition to Zimbabwe, where prosecutors had just filed their own set of charges, seven poisonings, and five murders. In terms of their quantity, it was probably best to go down on three murders rather than five dude anyway you're in prison forever three murders i mean i know there are some like northern european countries that they're like they have the maximum sentence so like you have to be released like there's that i swear is it is it like anders brevik the guy who was like killed all those people in that crazy massacre in was it norway he's gonna get out of prison one day because they have some maximum cap or something like that is that right or is he under some psychological thing where there's like theoretically a cap but it'll actually be in there forever because they'll never allow him they'll never say that he's competent to leave or something like that but they do have these maximum sentences but but you know you know where they don't have that the united states of america you can go to prison forever and in this situation that's fantastic Especially since the discovery of a white foreign doctor essentially executing impoverished locals was going to go down about as well as you might expect. The death penalty was very much on the cards there. Oh, okay, so they do have the death penalty, or did. However, the Justice Department in Harare agreed not to pursue extradition so long as Swango pled guilty and spent the rest of his life behind bars. So that's exactly what he got. The good doctor is currently safe and sound in his home country, serving three consecutive life sentences at ADX Florence Supermax Prison, Colorado. I made a video about adx florence on my channel um geographics and i think he's, he's got a company like that the the boston Mar marathon bomber i think's there uh ted kaczynski the unabomber's there it's like in great company with all these other horrible horrible people Hardly a satisfying conclusion given the amount of families out there left devastated by his crimes, and even worse, forever left without the closure of knowing the truth about what really happened to their loved ones. Yeah, I mean, if this is what we caught this dude on, he's gonna be, he did a whole lot worse shit for sure. And allegedly, he's in prison forever, what's he gonna do? Sue me? <laughs> allegedly, though, just in case, allegedly. Um, I'd say, I don't know, unless you believe, like, very much in the death penalty, which, you know, I'm not, I I don't know where I fall on this. I don't want to have this very one-person debate in me alone here about what my feelings are on the death penalty. But I don't know. If you don't believe in the death penalty, this is exactly the outcome you want. You want him in a massive, scary supermax prison in the middle of nowhere forever. I'd say that is a satisfying conclusion. I mean, obviously it'd be better if he never committed his crimes, but seeing as he did... This seems pretty okay. Wrap up. That brings us to the end of the sickening story of Dr. Michael Swango, the last person you'd want to see hovering over your hospital bed. But there's one last question to answer. Just how many people did he kill? I haven't been very precise on the numbers throughout, and there's a good reason for that. We don't really know any precise numbers. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's a good chance he may be among the worst killers in US history, even though nine or more killings happened abroad. All in all, despite only being convicted of three murders, Double O Swango could possibly be responsible for as many as 60 deaths. We can arrive at that estimate by looking back through his history and identifying unexplained uh, or unexpected deaths which occurred under his care from medical school until his capture. It's often impossible to say with certainty, though, because his methods could be so subtle, killing patients with drugs they were already taking anyway. At any rate, it's fair to say Michael Swango earned the Dr. Death nickname. But how does he stack up against the prior title holder? If you cast your mind back to episode 2, you'll remember that the UK's Harold Shipman racked up a potential 2 150 victims. Of course, I'm not saying it's a competition. That would be sick. But if it were, we would win. 
Callum, are you saying like UK versus US? We have the best doctor serial killer. Brilliant. Just saying. <laughs> Dismembered appendices. Number one. As part of their investigation into Swange, the FBI raided a storage locker he rented in Virginia. Inside, they found stacks of his macabre scrapbooks, a perfectly tied noose, and stockpiles of military gear and ammunition potentially collected during his time with the Marines. I thought he got rejected from the Marines, but ah. Given his genocidal fascinations, this made him pretty worried about what might happen if he was set free before the murder charges were served. Probably a good thing they never let his imprisonment lapse. Yes, <laughs> the one thing we didn't want to. Like a week before, like FBI were like, murder charges, murder charges. We like, don't do it a week after. Definitely a week before. Number two. The family of one of the victims succeeded in suing the doctor long before he was ever tried for murder. In 1984, at the the hospital in Ohio, 21-year-old Ricky DeLong was found dead with a lump of gauze stuffed down his throat. It was ruled a homicide at the time, and Ricky's parents successfully sued Swango for the death in 1986, which once again begs the question, how the hell did he get away with it for so long? Yeah, that's just straight murder. I mean, the regular stuff's straight murder as well, but you're like, that's like not even subtle with the drugs just like yeah just choke him to death like a regular crazy murderer number three swango tried to whip up some public sympathy after poisoning his fellow paramedics in 1984. he even had the gall to request a tv interview with abc journalist john stossel while behind bars in it he maintained that he was completely innocent of any wrongful deaths or illnesses despite knowing himself that there were dozens more victims left undiscovered and also he admitted it in he previously anyway that's where we end today's extremely dark episode i hope you enjoyed it i always feel weird (laughs) but i hope you found it interesting um if you did and you're listening to this as a podcast please do consider leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts if it's apple that's even better because then i get up the charts spotify doesn't have reviews so that's that thanks for listening on spotify and just enjoying it you don't have to do anything just thanks for listening and uh if you're watching this on youtube hello and please like subscribe comment if you fancy it and i'll see you next time oh hey if you've got requests i look at the comments on youtube for the videos so have a look below if you're watching on youtube or if you're listening why not head over to youtube and you can suggest people below and you can also thumbs up the ones you like and uh, those are the ones i'll probably see more of and, and more likely to make because i know people want them one thing i will say is don't list a whole bunch of people because then people will thumbs up for one of the people in your list and i won't know like they might not all be great suggestions that everyone loves so individual suggestions that's all and it's too complicated but thank you for watching seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.